Okay, thank you. Cheryl, I do, I do feel like I had like a small army praying for me and I needed it. So I'm very thankful for everybody who did. Um, so I've entitled this morning's talk, um, which is um, regarding the obviously nine chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, Revival of Worship. Which, as you read those chapters, it's, it took some time for me to come to this place. But I do really see that there is so much powerfully going along, going on in this really dark and hard situation. The power of God's work is what be, was beginning this work, of, new work of worship. Um, Ezra's mission and passion as, um, was to restore worship and to rebuild the temple here in Jerusalem. He brought along, as on his journey, priests and temple workers and treasures and holy articles that were going to occupy and furnish this temple. But perhaps the most important and powerful element that he brought was his deep love and reverence for God and devotion to the Torah. This is why he had been chosen. His life stood out and was powerfully attractive and um, displayed its power from God, as did the same thing happen in the life, the life of Daniel and Joseph and many others um, that we know of in Scripture at that time and before. As chapter 8 be- ends and chapter 9 begins, we find Ezra has been teaching for about four to five months before his actual arrival at this first temple celebration as we, that we just read about at the end of chapter 8. It is after the morning sacrifices that Ezra is told of the flagrant disobedience of God's people. And this includes and was led by the priests and the leaders of the rebuilding effort. <clears throat> the opening um, verse in chapter 1, I mean in chapter 9, um, brings word of God's swift and powerful conviction of sin and revealing of sin to their hearts. As it says in Hebrews, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to his eyes, um, exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's been about 57 years since the temple's completion, and this is the second wave of exiles um, that Ezra is leading in. And it makes you wonder, what was this temple about in these preceding 57 years? And it was no secret in the Torah that God told his people again and again that as they enter the land, they are supposed to drive out the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and be devoted to their complete destruction and make no covenant with them, or take their daughters or sons for your sons, um, or intermarry with them, lest they be drawn away from holy worship and into idolatry. Purity of worship and practice and life was definitional in who they were as God's people. These are God's commands, and they are his boundaries for them, his loving boundaries for them as his chosen people. 
Intermarriage with the local pagan community meant that the exiles who had returned to this place by God's powerful hand had turned their backs on his commands to remain holy and separate. In many cases, they abandoned their first marriages to Jewish wives and, as a result, um, immersed themselves in idolatrous living. And I, I think I read in the notes, too, sometimes this was... this. The intermarriage with the local women happened because they felt that there were that there weren't as many women who came back in the exile. Um, um, so again, trying to make life work, but not within the boundaries that God had given to them. Their prophets had been calling them out, Ezekiel and Malachi and Zechariah, and it was very clear and in the air that what they were doing was reprehensible. So. What had been happening at this temple? Was it mere religion? Was it just a small part of who they were about? Was the temple just a religious building or a symbol without life, much life happening in it? The priests and leaders were re- leading their, the way in these practices, and they were leading the way away from God. But they were hearing, had they been hearing the Torah? That's my question. I don't know if I know all these answers to these questions, but these are the questions that come up in my heart as I was studying and meditating on these things. And these are good questions for us to consider today about our lives and what God's word says to us. Whether Is this a mere religious thing that we're doing? Is this symbolic living? Or is this something that I'm really paying attention to? Ezra didn't raise the issue. When um, in, in um, chapter 9, verse 1, you'll see that this came to him as a surprise. Verse 1 says, The people of Israel and the priests approached Ezra, uh, um, and they went to him and went on to use the words of Moses to identify their very own sin. The announcement of these sins was brought to him from the hearts of people that were being revived and humbled as they were hearing God's word. They were waking up, and that is the power of God's word at work. I imagine them listening, and if they had, um, if they had like pocket Torahs, like we have all our Bibles today, looking in going, wait a minute, look at that. That's the thing I'm actually doing right now. I'm doing this very thing. Um, David Derek Kidner says, that Ezra's campaign to spread the knowledge of scripture was bearing characteristic fruit of reform less than five months after his arrival. It had thrown new light not only on a tolerated evil, but on the high calling of this community as a holy race and heirs of the Exodus. The result of Ezra's teaching and his people hearing God's word after a long dry spell, one might imagine, was that they were waking up and they were seeing new things and they were being humbled. Maybe the words of the prophets now are making some sense and sinking in. This is like a surgical process in the hand of a loving surgical God, a perfect surgeon, revealing hidden things hidden in hearts. And I just want to remind us that we have that same power today and this very same thing happens today as we read God's word. And that's the whole reason we're here this morning. (laughs) And that's the value and importance of what we are doing here in this Bible study. Ezra, the next thing I want to just talk about is Ezra's response. 
He responds not merely as a teacher of the law, but as a priest and a holy priest. His immediate reaction is a deep and passionate response of grief. In this culture and time, if you saw a neighbor or a friend tearing his garment or pulling at their hair, you would know immediately that something terrible had happened to them and someone very possibly, someone very, very close and beloved to them had died. He was full of this emotion. It was not an intellectual, cerebral response. This was full, this was all of his emotion and all of himself. It was very, very personal. I wanted to um, to, bring, <laughs> to show you something. Um, this was given to me at the time of my mother's death. Dear friends of mine, who I've often told, I, I really appreciate many of the customs that the Jewish culture uses at the time of death. But one of those symbols is, is a badge like this, and I don't know if any of you have seen them. You receive these, the family will receive this at, a, at the funeral home. This piece of uh, black fabric at the end is torn, and the, and the family member is able to wear this around on their clothes and their outer garments to let people know that they are in a time of mourning. And that this is a tradition that goes on today. You'll probably see it more now that I've just introduced it to you. I've long admired it because it does help you to know that the person is grieving and they are mourning and they are expressing this outwardly. At this point, and I want to thank my friends who were so thoughtful to give this to me. At this point, I want to put all of us on common ground, though. We're talking about the inner marriage, uh, inner mingling of marriages here. But I want to take us from that specific um, sin and idea to common ground and say, no matter what it is, sin leads to death. It is a turning away from the one who gives life. God, our creator, and when we turn our backs away from him to do life for ourselves, we are turning away from life and we are turning toward death. So naturally, we don't see it this way though, do we? It's probably the most natural thing in the world to believe that me doing life as I see fit is the way to freedom and happiness and real life. Like maybe living like the locals in Jerusalem, right? For a while, I may even feel like this is, this is true and this is right, this is best. But God tells us in his word, and eventually we realize through our life story that turning from him and going on our own way leads to death. The words used in this passage around these, in his prayers around this concept are bondage and slavery. And they refer to the fact that they and we are not a free and sovereign people, but there is a deeper reference, and there is a deeper reference to a, a slavery that is deeper in our souls and spirits. We are born into this constant drift away from Him and to ourselves. Proverbs 14:12 says, "There is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but in its end, but its end um, is the way to death." Those were the words of Solomon. Augustine calls this very natural assumption of our hearts, homo incurvitas and se, um, which means our hearts are naturally curved in upon ourselves and our own desires. And this is in contrast to homo incurvitas and deo, 
which is a heart that has been revived and realigned to bend toward the love of God and worship of God and will of God. The news to Ezra of what's been going on among the exiles signals death, and he expresses it with all his emotion. Question, we, we had this in our questions, I don't know how many of you went through it, is how do I see sin? Do I see it as death myself? And I've asked myself this question a lot as I've read through these, uh, these verses. I wonder, oftentimes, does my heart really grieve over, over a turn, my turning away from him? Or is it merely like an intellectual, like, did that, that was wrong, you know? Don't do that next time. Bad idea. Do I really respond to sin? You know, how do I really respond to sin when my heart has been exposed? Does it make my heart weep? Do I grieve? Ezra takes his grief and emotion and he goes to God. He withdraws into God's presence alone after that morning sacrifice. He comes and he comes out after a full day in silence alone with God, a humble priest, deeply reverent. Kinder again says Ezra's reaction is typical of him. It's almost an inaction, especially if you consider what we do these days, yet potent, yet much more potent than a flurry of activity. And this picture really challenges me. Notice there's no task force formed. There's no committee. There are no emails sent. There's no, um, you know, uh, you know, a bunch of actions proposed, although there is a place for that. But right now, as their priest, he intercedes. He was a mediator before a holy God, and that was his first step. And he didn't rush away from that place. He was bearing their sins as a servant. Um, as onlookers, as the onlookers wit witnessed him um, and saw this emotion and grief, they began to weep with him and get the gravity of what was happening, and they were trembling. <coughs> so God now powerfully again is working in the hearts of people um, as they tremble and gather. His prayer, this is my next part, is the power of his prayer. Um, consider the setting for the prayer, first of all. He is at the temple. This is after morning sacrifices have been performed. That means there has been the slaughter of many animals and blood, evidence of that everywhere. Um, and there had the, bur the burnt offerings were presented. He sits there in the temple. And my mind often drifts to Psalm 51 as I had thought th through and read through these this, this prayer of Ezra's. Um, there are many aspects of it that I see, but the one in particular is that um, sacrifices you did not desire, but what you desire is a broken and contrary heart. Mm -hmm. Ezra speaks of no righteousness of his own. His pronouns are us, our sin. I am ashamed to blush. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face. He's speaking about this personally. He's not proclaiming any righteousness of his own or pointing to the bad guys, but he is praying in humility. He numbers himself with the transgressors. He confesses Israel's historic unfaithfulness to God and shameful record of turning from him to pursue 
and dive into idolatry as the very cause of their suffering and captivity. Only because of God's mercy and steadfast love and repeatedly that uh, his repeating that over and over again that have they endured to this moment, to this miraculous opportunity where they now have an opportunity to rebuild this place of worship. I think it seems as though they forgot what makes them his people. They forgot what makes them Israel. And what makes them Israel and God's people is that God set his love upon them. And he made them as a people belonging, for a people belonging to him. Believing in God, they're um, also, their belief in a God who is invisible but has made himself known throughout all creation. This is their distinctive. It says in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, of um, the king of Egypt. Ezra refers to the exiles as a remnant in this passage. And a remnant refers to a portion of people who remain after, who remain after the, um, most others are destroyed. After the flood, Noah, his wife, and family were a remnant. After the time of Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt, the remnant was about 300,000 strong. And in this point in history, um, the, after the destruction of Jerusalem, at this point in the history, there are about 50,000 in number. Their very existence and survival as exiles, um, um, and the fact that they are brought to this gracious place, is to acknowledge God's mighty hand. And he says, don't we see this? that this time is for such a, th- a brightening of our eyes and the reviving of our faith? Even in our slavery, God has been so good to us to bring us to this place. It's worthwhile pointing out this matter, the matter in the, um, this, the fact that the um, issue of intermarriage was not about pure being ethnically pure. It was about devotion to following Yahweh. We know this now, and that um, in these times um, in the New Covenant. But in the Old Testament times, many there were many examples of many non-Jews becoming followers of God. For example, I'm just going to give you a couple, but there are many. Zipporah, uh, Moses' wife, and her father Jethro. Ruth was a Moabitess, but um, was part of God's family. So the distinctive here is not ethnicity, it is devotion to God. So he finishes his prayer with a despairing admission that they deserve, really honestly, to be wiped out. A, A just and a righteous God could very well do this thing. Um, And he has all the raw and honest and appropriate emotion to go along with that. God, and I'm sure at this, he would probably figure it, God will fulfill his covenant to bless the nations that he gave to Abraham. But maybe it's going to be among those scattered guys out there. Maybe not all of us in this, this lot here. Ezra feels pretty defeated and despairing, but he's honest. He's honest with his emotion and confession with God. The next part, I think, where we see amazing power is repentance through repentance. 
And I just want to encourage you to look at the resurrection language in um, chapter uh, in, um, in this chapter. Shechaniah tells Ezra, "Arise, this is your task, and we are with you." And then it says, "And then Ezra rose." He he says, "Arise." Um, I'm repeating myself here, but can you imagine how Ezra may have felt leaving this from this point of utter just just dumping his his heart out with all the the discouragement that he has and then he seeing this man Shechaniah come and say wait a minute there's hope there's hope arise so he had hope the power of god had whispered hope and resurrection in this place of dark de- defeat and we have this hope today in our defeats sisters even more perfectly evidenced through the through the life um, and uh, the perfect life and uh, death and resurrection of Christ. There is a way forward, so get up, confess, turn away, and repent. And all. And so from this point forward, Ezra called together the priests and Levites to tar- take an oath and carry out this new plan. Any one of the exiles who refused to respond and attend would forfeit their membership in the commu- community declare you this day who you will serve. And that's what happened. Ezra confronts them with the straight, somber, and sober news of their sin. You have broken faith and married foreign women and increased the guilt of Israel. Now make your confession to the Lord and your God and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and your foreign wives. Once again, Ezra's next move is to withdraw fast and pray and I love this about him as a priest Um, so as the business of the hearings is going is beginning to unfold the power of God is needed and that is where Ezra goes and begins and remains so a couple words about repentance here repentance is so many things but repentance is inconvenient repentance is uncomfortable It's never about waiting for the good timing or comfortable timing. It is war on sin and so much more. And most importantly, as Ezra demonstrates, the power for it comes from God, not from self-effort. This is power that we need from him. This scene um, is one of misery. It's the rainy season. Um, People are cold and trembling in the rain in the rain um, and then uh, um, as they as they realize what's got to happen they go they are able to keep the proceedings going for three months as they go to their their homes and continue this very personal and judicial process out over three months see I think the evidence that God was doing this um, is that that guy was powerfully at work is this long list of names at the end of chapter 10. Um, Many, and many of them took this very seriously. They put their names on this very inauspicious record and made their confessions um, and, um, and then submitted to public discipline. I think this is kind of amazing, guys, I have to say. And I am certain that this was an incredibly painful process, the process of dissolving marriages and sending women and children on their way. 
I have to say, I felt it was very hard passage to read and resolve. How did this figure out? How did this happen? It is painful. It is messy. It's also a picture of how sin has a lot of costly collateral damage. There's a lot to think and meditate on when you take all this in. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, I rejoice not because you grieve, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces repentance, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, grief produces death. Um, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And I just think we see that earnestness lived out in how they responded. Spurgeon says this about repentance. Repentance makes us see the evil of sin, not merely as a theory, but as a burnt child sees the dread of fire. We shall be as much afraid of it as a man who has lately been stopped and robbed is afraid if a, theory, if a thief upon the high, if he runs into a thief upon the highway and we shall shun it shun it shun it in everything not in great things only but in little things as men shun vipers as well as great snakes he goes on to say sincere repentance is continual and believers repent till their dying day mm-hmm. well and that's my experience anyhow for sure um Repentance is not a man-centered decision to change on its own. It must be accompanied with the and powered by the power of God. Even as David prays and asks God in Psalm 51, renew a right spirit within, within me. He's asking God for the power to have a new spirit within him. Well... Thus ends the book of Ezra. <laughs> wow! And on we go to Nehemiah. So what have I learned about all this? I, I, number one, we have a God who graciously uncovers our sin for us, and he does that through his word. And that is good news. We don't run away from this. This is good news and help. And it is in order to restore us as his people and to worshipers. The more God shows us, the more we are restored. And this is a call to humility and openness to seeing that, um, seeing that and, and being gracious to others who are in that place as well, who are seeing sin and dealing with it in their life. And this is how the kingdom of God moves forward. Um, second of all, we see a pretty great priest with Ezra. As we pray, as he prayed, he prevailed on the covenant promises, the things that God said to them, um, to Abraham, and, um, and, he dem- and God's demonstrated steadfast love and mercy that he had, his, he had demonstrated through all generations and on the teaching of the law as he dealt with Israel. He was a great priest. He was one of many priests who taught the law, interceded for and offered sacrifices and burnt offerings for themselves and other people. But I, I um, Hebrews 10 says, this of these priests day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again he offers the same sacrifices but these sacrifices can never really take away the sins priesthood under the law I think 
was a honored but also quite kind of a disappointing and hard business. You could never truly rest. Hard as they could, they could never make these people a holy people. We know the long history of God's people, and we know our own stories as well. We hear from Ezra one more time, upcoming in the book of Nehemiah, and that's the end. That's, he was a, a mere man, and he died. This system of worship in the temple, um, leading un, being led and being led under these priests with a gift, but it was a limited gift, and it was a shadow of better things to come. The order of things was rebuilding, but only a shadow and a signpost to a new and better hope. I just thought I'd insert here, though, that we, we also now, it says in First Peter that we are priests, that we get to be priests. Like Ezra before the Father, um, um, we get to take these, we get to take these burdens. We get to pray for sisters, brothers, or families. Um, we get to go to that place and withdraw and be with him. As, and I wanted to also mention that, you know, the beauty of Ezra is that he did pray and fast, and it was about that quietness and time and communion, and it wasn't the flurry of activity. We don't have to be fixers, everybody, but if we are priests and for one another, we are doing a great thing. Um, um, even as we are mere earthen vessels, we can draw near to one another and show God's all-surpassing glory to our friends and family as we pray for them. So, sisters, as this morning, as we conclude this book and we look to we look to our priest, who is Jesus, who is perfect, and who has ushered in a new covenant that has been sealed in His perfectly righteous, flawless life, pleasing to the Father and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Jesus said to the Father, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then he said, Here I am. It has been written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. Today we rest. We can rest in this Jesus, in the work he has done for us. The work that he has done on our behalf is perfect and complete, and we have new hearts that can be soft and changed. And um, even imagine this, today he prays for us.